Hi, everybody. Welcome to our fun, exciting wrap-up to Eyes in the Mist. The eyes are closed. The mist has cleared. Our adventurers have left the jungle, and now we're here to talk about it. Joining me is everybody. Hello. Hi. Hi, guys. Hey, everybody. And we're going to talk about this adventure we just had. So let's get down to it. Uh, Cal, the last episode just happened. We just finished recording it. We just faded to black. How are you feeling in this moment? I feel very pleased. That's a, I think it, I think it came out pretty well. I'm, I'm really happy with our little adventure that we just went on. Did it end the way you expected it would? Um, in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. But, like, I don't know if I had a whole bunch of expectations necessarily set. I want to know which yeah. characters, Cal, you thought weren't weren't going to survive or were going to survive. Like, what was your, what's your over-under on the surviving members of the party? I feel like we came out with the right ratio of, like, how many people I thought would survive. <laughs> no, 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 no. What we're asking is, which of the three of us did you have march for death? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, well, I killed one of you. Um, <laughs> once, yeah, once ages ago, yeah, very long time more ago. of you. I I really thought that I really thought that Domius was going to die at one point, and in fact, I think I came pretty close to killing. You, all you of came you. really oh. close to killing Domius, and I realized at that moment that I was the weakest character. You know, I was a controller in a in a in a party full of fighters, so I built a uh, a backup character just in case because I didn't want to be caught in between recording sessions without something to play. Mm-hmm. Remember you telling me about that? Yeah. I almost died this last episode, like, twice. You did. You did. You went down pretty hard, both fights. I I ate all three full HP bananas. (laughs) 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 I was a little greedy. Everyone kept giving them to me because I was, you know, almost dead. Well, we'd already lost you, Lister. We didn't want to lose you. It's true. That would have been sad. It would have been really sad. We'd gotten all the way to the finale. What are we supposed to do? Just let you die? Especially when I had taken... I think over the course of the last couple fights, I took what twelve damage total. Yeah, you you were never up in the in anyone's face. Somewhere in this game, it shifted from Paul being the fighter to me being the fighter. But I think that's when I grew fangs. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, you turned into a snake person. Yeah, you, you, like the moment the shifter class finally got stuff to do. It's true. Uh, you just became so much clearly the better close combat fighter. I knew I had to go in a different direction or else I was just going to end up kind of doing what you were doing, but like not as good and less times per turn. <laughs> True, that full round natural attack, man, it's the best. Yes. Now all of our legions of fans, when they see you in public, all chant, bite, claw, claw. <laughs> yes. you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't eat brunch out and about without people chanting, bite, claw, claw. With every bite you take. Yeah. And every claw you make. <laughs> Did um did all the NPCs though that you thought were gonna die Cal die or no did you... no I was really sure I was gonna kill Shayaka early <gasps> what yeah I, well I, well like okay so <laughs> everybody had kind of like an arc in my head and somewhat pretty long and some of them might have petered out early uh, I think it might be fair to say that everyone was on the chopping block yeah and there wasn't anyone who was necessarily safe everybody had kind of like a a, a, a version where like I could see them dying in a different way. Shayaka, I kind of invented because I thought it'd be really interesting to have like a character who was like really nice and really like out there and like really, you know, a, a good go-getter kind of character who then got like torn apart by the Charokot early. I thought that was going to be really interesting. 
because uh, like in my head, I'm like, oh, the Chiroka hate Venara, so they'll see this guy and they'll just like immediately try to kill him. And I did that for a while, and he kept like living through it. Well, I mean, I think we all felt like a need to protect Chiroka because yeah. he could heal people. Because he was the big healer. Yeah, Christy. So that, yeah, I mean, you didn't come back as a healer, so <laughs> yeah. We needed I, to keep Shayaka. He's also the only one who could heal you, Mister. I can't drink potions of cure. <laughs> nice coming back as a little bit of a revenge character. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was really sure that, like, I thought I kind of wrote Shayaka as like someone who would die earlier in the adventure, and he just lived through the whole thing instead, and then like ended up being like a pretty key component towards the story. I feel like there's a moment that happens in a lot of like narrative devices we see where a character gets killed and you're like, oh no, shit just got real. People are gonna die and now I'm concerned. What was that moment for you guys? I think it was Dalton. Oh yeah. I think it like people had died before but it was, you know, it was Eulister but that was relatively early in the campaign. Uh, so Domius kind of replaced him. Uh, Mosi. Eh, we, mostly we hardly knew you, which is too bad because Cal does a pretty good Jennifer Aniston circa 1994 impression. Yeah, I was really, really owning that at the time. Yeah, <laughs> but like, and, and like the other laborers died too, but Dalton, all the characters had formed some kind of bond with Dalton at the point when he died. I was so pissed that he died. Well, I mean, also, we had just expended so much effort to save him. him in the first place. I, I remember yeah. talking to Cal about this as you guys were going through this long, rot mission to save Dalton. And I was like, oh, geez, is he dead already? And Cal was like, not yet. We're going to see what happens. Like, I didn't think they would do so well. And they might find him. I tried so hard to save him. I really, really did. I, I tried yeah. to make this devil's bargain with Cal... Because I didn't want to kill him, but he had this gun in his hand, and I'd taken like two turns worth of buckshot in the face, and birdshot's pretty bad for for a, a bird. bird. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Like he unloaded. Like it, you turned the corner, he basically like unloaded on you, and like well, knocked you down to like almost nothing. Talk, talk about a moment where a character almost dies. That was a close call for you. Yeah, Kafka was relatively safe. Archibald was honestly in more danger than Kafka over the course of the campaign, which. Still pretty serious. I would have sacrificed Kafka to save Archibald. Sure. But, <laughs> sure. but uh, no, with Dalton, I tried to make that deal with Cal where if I rolled well enough, I could chop off his gun hand and mm-hmm. save his life. Uh, and then I just I just rolled so badly. I like stuff like that because it changes the, the flow of the story. It's it's kind of like in the last second we just did with like Chelly dying. Like, mm-hmm. you know, just like, it's like, okay, it's on this roll. Like, and, then, and then I rolled... Really poorly. Right, and it just it decides how the story kind of plays out. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of the beauty of D&D is that everything is left up to chance, and it feels like life in a way. Minus, yeah. like, the Charoka. <laughs> yeah, except when Cal's dice cheat, which mm-hmm, they do mm-hmm. constantly. It's true. I think my dice were actually cheating all the time. I'd have hit Kata way, way more. That's true. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I took her down a couple times in that last stuff, but only because, like, I was pretty upfrontly using enemies that were way stronger than you. Oh, yeah. Decidedly stronger than us. You guys still took a huge chunk out of Zeranagam in that last fight. Like, I could have done it had I landed more hits. It went from being like, this is going to be a TBK, to me being like, are they going to just kill Zeranagam? I was shooting him a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's interesting, speaking about Zeranagam, <laughs> you, you meet a demon, he's in a tree. And you're like, well, that's not happening. And then it does. Um... <laughs> I guess, like, what were kind of the turning moments for you guys to take this tree demon and and free him? Um, 
I think that was kind of one of the things I really enjoyed about the campaign is the instability of your alliances. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, A, you know, the, there were hags disguised as these main characters. So our alliances with them were not real, right? They were perceived. Yeah, they're perceived. And then, and then so, so we end up like killing the one person who's not a hag. Right. And so, and we go from there constantly being betrayed and backstabbed and confused and that, and, and understand what's really happening. And so the idea that at one point freeing Zramnagan became the best action we could take. And then not like an episode later, we're like, well, I guess we got to fix that problem. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah. It's, I think, I'm curious, Cal, as to mm-hmm. what would have happened if we had, you know, let the traitor talk. Oh, like had you actually like had a real conversation? <laughs> we had a conversation with Kaburek, like who was guarding Zaramnayam in a tree. What would have happened had we let that character live? Right. Well, okay. I guess it, it, I think you would have discovered some of the hag stuff just differently because I think now the hag stuff came out of out of like you guys finding like Little Cloud's body and, that's and Dalton saw, and the, and all that kind of poured out from there. In my initial kind of concept, I init- I thought like it would be Kabarak, the the heretic of Angazan, who would kind of tell you like it's like he I don't think he knew they were hags, but he knew she was an imposter, and it would have kind of like fueled that, and you could have like had some back and forth, but like but also yeah like like they had Dalton, so I don't know I don't know <laughs> what the, like what yeah. you would, could have had to try to save him or something I don't know like that was like I tried not to plot too far ahead. In this campaign, because like I just wanted to leave a lot of like big open questions, and then just see what you guys did, and then I would kind of maybe make a, a new move to react. Yeah, as of I think I would say close to even two or three weeks ago, Cal and I were talking because I wanted to know what was happening because I'm just like watching you guys explore this story as Cal is like hammering a bridge in front of you frantically, and Cal was like, "The final encounter could be here or here or here or here, so we'll see what happens." Well, I have to say, I thought it was amazing that the final that the final fight was at the treehouse. Oh, I love that. I, yeah. yeah, I was a little proud of myself for that. It was because because it, it, it was funny because we kind of assumed that it had been a very a safe house that it was safe, mm-hmm. and it was so amazing to have that pulled out from under us. And then, of course, have in a sense that it, it was a it was a location of some really incredible closure for a lot of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really scouring of the Shire. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It felt like you were kind of going back after after because I kind of thought like after Zeranda Gum like like they won't expect like another thing. I did not expect another thing. I totally expected another thing. We took down Zeranda Gum in way too straightforward a fashion. Hey, so what was with that monkey? Yeah, what's with the little monkey that's been watching us? Have you just been watching too many episodes of Family Guy from fifteen years ago? Yeah, that's what it was. I don't know. I it, might, it was it's like a hanging metaphor, right? Like that's how I kind of saw the monkey. It, it had no specific real. Was it maybe like a spy of Angazan? Was it was it just a monkey? Was it the spirit of the jungle itself? Like the it, the, it the was, banjo kid from Deliverance? Yeah, it's it, it okay. just like, or it's also I also I think the biggest thing was like kind of one of my inspirations like it's eyes in the mist and like the idea was that you as a group in the expedition was were, were being observed the whole time by either the hags or the charoka or maybe angazan or like you there were constantly eyes on the party when they were in the jungle and i think like the the monkey was kind of like a like just kind of like a weird little hanging metaphor for it you know, it's funny because there hasn't been a campaign that I've played in which I haven't been dismissive of anti-scrying technology. Like, I always feel like 
that's a waste of a spell slot, mm-hmm. you know? And yet, for some reason, Cal, every time that I'm in one of your campaigns, I'm always, I always have eyes on me. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to play a good villain, and I wanted to try to make the villains of this, because I feel like the, my personal weakness in a lot of my campaigns has been my villain work. I feel like I can make pretty good allies, and I can make kind of fun uh, characters you want to like hang out with and interact with, but I have a hard time sometimes, I feel like, really selling a villain, really like making you be like, I hate this villain, I want to like, or like, this villain has wronged me, and I feel like I wanted to make sure that the story had enough work where you could be like, there's enough reasons for me to dislike the villains of this story. Yeah, I'm sure at the end of it, all of you had personal reasons for wanting things to go down the way they did. Yeah. I was really pissed when my last leaves of the autumn dryad, which was a really cool gift, was just a damn scrying mechanism. <laughs> I was so pissed. Yeah. To be fair, you were also using it as a scrying mechanism. Okay. But mine was for good and hers was for bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if only there'd been a character who was saying the entire time that it was a creepy wilderness cult. Yeah, but you know, it was too soon. I was tricked. We had only met, honestly, in the jungle, I think we really only met other than Damius. Little Cloud, who was maybe friendly. Mm -hmm. The Laughing Dog tribe became friendly eventually after we did a little bit of work. I trusted Sugar Glade so much. Yeah. That yeah, my, my backup character, when I almost died in a, a, you know, in a mid-session, uh, my backup character was going to be from Sugar Glade, was, was a changeling from Sugar Glade. <laughs> Alan, uh, Alan telling me that, he's like, oh, I'm going to play a changeling from Sugar Glade in my head. I'm like, that's not going to really work. Cal's like, my job just got very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and, then he, and then he didn't kill me. Yay. Yay. Funny how that all worked out. <laughs> Christy, did you have a backup character in case Kata died? I didn't, really. Um, I did, I did we, when we initially started. Once Eulister died, I was like, oh, fuck. what happens if i die on air before i get to do anything cool oh no uh so like i had i had backstoried my way into figuring out how i could be another adventurer but once we got far enough into it i i was like i don't know where i'd even put a backup character in this in this jungle that was kind of a good after a while i feel like if i had killed somebody i would have killed somebody and that would have just been it like there was a couple really close calls specifically with kata yeah where like you hit Right before death, kind of notes. It's like, oh wow, decidedly one. Yeah, right like before there, death. Was, there was pretty, pretty, pretty close calls. Uh, and I don't know in some of those instances what you would have come back as. I think I would have talked to you and like, well, let's talk about a character that makes sense. I probably would have suggested like some sort of beastkin or maybe like maybe a gripply who like left the sunset frogs or. Mm. Something like like another survivor, or maybe you know something like that. Someone, sure. someone. I think the the jungle ecosystem that you built has really lent itself to those possibilities. It's clear that like this is a very living, breathing world setting for for this campaign to take place in. Um, so let's talk a little bit about it. Like what about the jungle worked for you guys? What didn't? This is a great opportunity to talk a little bit about like the house rules that we came up with at the top of everything. Um, I'm going to start with the exploring mechanic. Okay. Uh, was that was that... a little different than what we've done before. Yeah, and what is that from? Where'd you get that? Ultimate Wilderness. I have to say, because I is I thought it was frustrating. I hated it. Right. A lot. Right. And yet at the same time, it was a really kind of an essentially profound way to explore the jungle and to actually have meaningful exploration. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it it was a it was it was a you know, like I said again, frustrating mechanic, but at the same time I kind of really felt that it made a reality. 
I agree with what you're saying. I think because I feel like when I put I've done hex exploration before, we take like a blank hex map and it's empty, and then we as we explore the hexes, we fill them in, and then it's like, oh, the world's unveiling to it, itself to us. But I feel like that lends itself to safe exploration, right? Then I you start to feel like you really know the place once you have a map. And yeah, and I've seen you do that. So yeah. And you've seen me do that. Like, and it's like, I feel like players start looking at those maps and like, I know where we're going. I have a sense of how big this place is and I have a sense of like, where everything is and I can kind of visualize it. And I wanted everyone to feel a little bit removed. I didn't want everyone to feel suddenly comfortable in lo- in like the, in the Lotus Valley. I wanted everything to still feel like a little opaque, even as, as you got to understand it. Orchid Valley. I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> Over the Orchid Valley. Yeah. It's okay. It's your world. Yeah. No, no, it's our world now. It's, you've taken it from me. <laughs> I wanted Orchid Valley to feel a little orpa- opaque still. It was important to make you guys feel not at home. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes maps make you feel at home or safe. It certainly did that because it was non-visual and it, it yeah. Yeah, yeah, it left absolutely. everyone just being like, where is everything? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know. Theater of the mind. Yep. Discovery points were a little confusing at first. Mm-hmm. I think I, I, we eventually got the hang of it, but they, that was one of those things where it was like, what do you mean I can spend, I'm, I'm going to gamble discovery points. I'm going to say I'm willing to spend eight. What happens now? <laughs> yeah. In the book, it's written that you don't get the discovery, like, like if there's excess ones, you don't get them back. But I was like, ah, nah, you can get it back. Yeah, it was, that was, that was something that was just interesting to get used to after being used to exploration mm-hmm. that discovery points were needed you needed to have a surplus of them before you could find anything before you could find what you were looking for i think i i kind of i did a little bit of this like while you were exploring like you could run into encounters or you could, like that's like i think when you were exploring you ran into a little cloud yeah and i wish i i think i wish i'd done a little bit more of that of uh, making you feel like when you're in the jungle, like even though you're just discovering something and just looking, you might stumble upon something anyway. I wish I'd done a little bit more of that. Like maybe you could have uncovered a thing or two. That I feel like that also though raises the risk, especially for this particular story, when there are so many different things happening and and so many threads that are all leading to one place. You don't want to throw a stray thread in there, and then all of a sudden it's like oh, well, that tribe of friendly lemurs are clearly involved in this conspiracy and we have to go kill them all. I feel like there's definitely the risk of that whenever you just start throwing in encounters that don't necessarily serve a purpose because Little Cloud served a purpose. She was a signpost to the hags. I guess my question would be if you had done more encounters like that, would they have also functioned as signposts? It could have been things like, it, yeah, it would have been more signposts. It would have been, or just different kinds of signposts. Like there was a, there was a whole bunch of this stuff we didn't use at all in this campaign. It could have been things like, there was stuff like we hinted at, like there was in the jungle, the ancient temples of like the three monkey gods that were out scattered in the jungle. And I, in my head, I'm like, there, each of them has like kind of a little thing at them. And like, it would have been like a magical reward or kind of an, a role playing encounter with some sort of something. Um, and it could have been something like that. Like it, it would never have been just like, here's a random thing. It would be like, here's something that still serves the story. You just happen to uncover it this way. Cool. Paul, what are, what were your thoughts about the mechanisms? Kind of as a character choice, I decided that Kafka wouldn't really be that uh, exploration heavy. I mean, he actually has a really good survival check, what with being a wisdom build and everything. But uh, I decided that this is a guy who is on a semester abroad that has become way, way more than he ever bargained for. So I thought it was more in character for him to stick close to camp as much as possible. But I knew I needed to do some kind of discovery, needed to pull my weight. So 
mechanic I ended up using the most, I think, was Cal's little chart of uh, development of relationships with the NPCs, which I ended up really enjoying quite a lot. Like, especially during the middle there, for a lot of it, a lot of it would be Damius and Kata off in the jungle or inside one of the temples. And in in this fun running B plot, uh, Kafka takes a bath with Malik or something like that. <laughs> it's maybe the best episode. It, it, it was very, very fun. Uh, no, I, I really liked, because um, you've obviously, having played with you for half a decade and counting, I've played with your NPCs before. And you make good NPCs, like you said earlier, but... You've never been so formal and intentional with how you track the relationship between the party and NPCs before. Like, you know, there was – in one of the other campaigns we did, there was this guy who was just a farmer. But for whatever reason, we just kept sending everybody we met over to his farm and turned him into an innkeeper and he was always put upon. And it was like kind of funny, but there was no chart for that. There was no way uh, to use that mechanically. Um, and I really liked that you found a way to formalize that that still felt very organic to the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a weird relationship with the with the NPC chart. Yeah. Because because uh, essentially that mostly shows up when Domius arrives. It wasn't really heavy in be- before that. Because right. We weren't really. Matter. Yeah. It, it didn't, didn't start mattering much. until like yeah. it got to Poema. Yeah. Until we had morning and night shifts to track. Yeah. So we could actually choose to spend time with them. So then so then Damius enters the story very um, incapable of connecting to people, um, having lived alone or uh, almost alone, um, and having having forgotten every his past. He he has this disconnect from everything around him, especially people. And so the chart was this weird thing because I was supposed to connect to the people in the chart to make movement happen. And I had this innate like antipathy toward it. And then as Domius becomes more open and open to people and interacts with people and then rewards happen. So suddenly there's something good happening from what he's done by connecting. It had this weird metaphor of, of kind of bringing him out of his shell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's nice too that you had Ruth and Anushka, who you so cl- like seem to have real clear bonds with right away. So that way, it, it wasn't like you were entirely isolated from the get go. Yeah, Ruth more than Anushka. Anushka hated me. <laughs> Actually, that's a pretty good question. I mean, uh, obviously yours was Ruth, but Christy, would, would you say that your favorite NPC was Dalton? Yeah, I'm pissed he died. Um, I did what I could. I'm sorry. I'm pissed that I was on the wrong side of camp. It's cool. After all you went through to save him. I just had such a good moment. It's all right. Um, I just, yeah, I mean, I like Dalton. I really grew to love Suresh and this kind of like demon transformation that was happening. I thought it was super fun. I'm sure you imagined he was going to die at some point. Oh, I imagined a lot of different ends for Suresh Sumadra. Yes. A lot. Like, I, I just didn't know where it was ever going to go. Because Suresh turning into a demon happened organically during play. It was never something I counted on. Oh. Yeah, like, that was never <laughs> necessarily supposed to happen. He was like, what happened is, if you remember, he starts turning into a demon because of the haunt in the Bronze Pyramid. Yeah. And that was just like, you, and that could have happened to anybody. Like, he, we were just role playing. It made sense that Suresh went first. But I'd written it months, like or weeks and weeks before that, and so I don't know who was going to go first at the time. I I assumed it was probably going to be like one of the PCs going would get hit by this spell, and then like the, one of you three would then be slowly like being corrupt. There's a corruption mechanic from horror adventures, and I thought like oh it'd be kind of neat like one of the PCs is like slowly turning into a demon during all this, and then it happened to Suresh instead. I'm like well okay. Which was really funny, by the way. Like, you took it and you ran with it really, really far. Yeah, it was great. 
I, I also kind of enjoyed how he never stopped being Suresh no. to the process. <laughs> I thought that I thought that was kind of awesome, actually. So enthusiastic about his horns. He really loved them, and I thought they were cool. I mean, it was a it was a very cool twist on that character to kind of let the, let that play out, especially when like Hags could have exacted revenge on him and like traded his life for Ruth's. I don't know. There were lots of things. Like there what's were, yeah. What's up with Anushka? Is she going to be okay outside the jungle? I think, like, now that, like, because the, the deal ultimate was that, like, in order to save Ruth, who had died from the Charukai attack 20 years ago, he made a deal with Mathilti in the jungle that she would bring him back in return for his most pri- prized possession, which he assumed to be the paw of Angazan, which he had just recovered. He then gives that to her, assuming that's what his, his prized possession is. But then eventually, like, he has a daughter and, like, that is his true prized possession. That's what Mathilde really wanted. She, like, the, the paw bank is on just ended up being an incredible bonus. Yeah. He was like, oh, of course, here. And she's like, yes, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Hmm. Uh, um, uh, by the way, that brings up something I was thinking, too, is um, beyond uh, Ruth and beyond Shayaka, uh, Mathilde was, in fact, one of Dom, Domi's yeah, favorite. Yeah, was a really fun villain. Favorite really people. Yeah. Don't you mean Grandmother Willow? Yeah. From, <laughs> from, from what, what was it, Christy? The the Sugar Cove Forest. What did you call it? Sugar Coated Candy yeah, Forest, what did you call yeah, it? Yeah, something like that. You, you bolted like four words onto the end of that. You there. know. Um, I, but I have to say that I really, really liked her, honestly. And then when it turned out that she was a hag... I felt so betrayed and yeah. so wounded and so <laughs> hurt, so like upset. so upset. And that one of the reasons I think that I I think I've hated these hags more than I've hated a lot of villains in RPGs. Mm-hmm. Just and I think a lot of it goes back to the betrayal of Mathilti. Yeah, I felt I felt very hurt. Yeah, I, I definitely tried to frame it as a betrayal. I liked the idea that like in my head, like the the story of Mathilti is like, oh, she was, you know, she's a hag. She's on the run, maybe. She hears about like this colony that's away from all of the her other problems, and that she could probably get a she realizes that she could probably blend in and just like act like another one of the people in the colony, and then like you know continue her you know evil work you know but like you know away from society deep in the jungle, and then she stumbles in on this like paw thing, realizes she can use it to take control of the local Charuka tribes, and then from there like establishes like. A control over the entire valley. And that's why she wipes out Leroy first. And I loved her. Yeah. <laughs> From a thematic standpoint, I've, I hit on this a couple times in character, but uh, I really wanted to commend you, Cal, on making it so that one of the major threats that we faced was not native to the jungle. Yeah. I really, really... Because, like, I... I know you, so I knew you were never going to be in any danger of this, but with jungle punk stories in general, you run a very real risk of poor, beleaguered, civilized outsiders uh, trying to protect themselves against this savage, horrid, brutish jungle. And uh, you did a really nice... You did a really nice reversal on who our enemy was Mm -hmm. while not letting our own adventuring party off the hook for also meddling where we didn't really belong. Thank you. Thank you. That was kind of like, those were, uh, that was like the themes I was trying to like rub up against a little bit. I was really pretty pleased that a lot of that kind of turned out. Was Altatika always going to be dead? Yes. Ah. 
Really? Yeah, Olatika was always Olatika. Olatika was always dead because the hags were always, like Sugarlade was always bad, and I wanted a way to demonstrate. Okay, what ha- the, the order of events is this: is that you guys killed the one hag that the the hag that was taking care of um little cloud, little cloud, which was like nothing I had really planned necessarily. Like I just kind of knew that's what had happened to little cloud is that little cloud was killed by hags. And then you guys decided to pursue that, and so that whole part happened. And so that kind of threw a new part of the game in where I'm like, okay, well, now this one hag, who was, like, my least developed out of of the three sisters, she was like, I'm like, there's a third sister. Uh." (laughs) (laughs) Well, she felt that way. Yeah, exactly. And then it's good that she dies early, because then I was able to to use her in, I think, a really effective way. Uh, Because, like, she dies early. You guys now, it's now revealed that there are hags here. And oh, and I think you even recognized immediately that there's if there's one hag here, there's probably there's probably more. two mother ha- two exactly. more hags. Yeah, yeah. We kind of talk. We start talking about we start talking about covens, and it's like, well, what the fuck is all of this? Like, there has to be some sort of connection between all the changelings at Sugar Glade and this, but like, what is it? So Olatika comes out of me wanting to infiltrate, like, from Mithilti's like perspective, I kind of imagined that. The group of you had outworn your welcome. She wanted the people, the PCs, to take care of, like, the heretic of Angazan for her, and she wanted them to get rid of the geist in Poema for her. Those were the, her big problems, like, that she couldn't deal with on her own at that point. And so after they were taken care of, and then you had killed her sister, she's like, well, I'm over these people. Get the, I'd like them dead now. <laughs> and, and so had you gone up to actually, like, free Olatika, it would have been an encounter where, like, Oh, Latika's like whole section. He would have like, he would have gone to his roost, and it would have he would have fought him there instead, basically. And it and it would have he would have tried to like prevent yeah. you from leaving and try to kill you. There's a whole part of the island that we never got to because I sent some autumn leaves of the dryad up I mean, there the jungle. instead. Oh, the, I, that that even the mountain island. Yeah, the mountain island. Yeah. Mountain a, island. Like yeah. we we ignored that whole part of it because I used the last leaves of the autumn dryad to go up there giant instead. Ants. And you, you guys kind of knew that and I was like, "Come on, go into my giant ant." Hill. Well, it it was really funny cuz in between sessions Cal would talk to me because everything was still so nebulous and we would bounce ideas as to how to accomplish the story goals but still give you guys like the freedom to impact the story. And when the decision was kind of made to go check out Ola go, to go find Olatika, it was like, "Well, it's a trap. How is it a trap?" Oh, Maybe he's just already dead and like a zombie, and then she like traps him, them in there with him. That could be good. Yeah, it was like it was like, and then she traps them in there with them, and then what happens? Oh, maybe Zaranagam like frees them from that trap or something, and then so a lot of these bees just got shuffled around. Yeah, and so what we ended up with was like Pearl Harbor in the jungle. <laughs> it was kind of like Pearl Harbor in the jungle. <laughs> with no help from Domius. That was that was a rough. That was one of those episodes where just. Someone's dice just weren't cooperating, and that particular time it was yours, man. Yeah, I know. I lost two soul gems. Two, yeah. It was like two soul gems and what, like ten and my, charges of of a wand. Yeah. I think it was like Day's monster or something. Yeah. And 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 a good like seventy five percent of my self respect. <laughs> yeah. It was rough. And then didn't didn't one of the NPCs try it and immediately succeed? It was Cheldy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Damius was tired. He'd had a day. It was a long day for everybody. I liked because I feel like there is like the the thrust of the story. The first bit of the jungle, you know, Vuba, the river, then settling into Poema after a little bit at Leroy, and then like 
a little bit of Poema was like, just kind of like, oh, there's Charoka here, but like other mysteries and like what's going on in all these buildings. And you know, it was a little bit more like, okay, kind of like fun, but like sinister, but fun. And then it's like starts to turn when like Dalton dies and then it makes a bigger turn when you guys went to finally go like investigate at Sugar Glade again. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, then the idea was as soon as, unbeknownst to you guys, as soon as Dalton dies, that's the first domino of a bunch of dominoes that have been lined up to topple. Um, and things were supposed to go really poorly, really quickly. And I think they, they did. did. Yeah, they did. Yeah. That's how it felt, yeah. Yeah. That's good. We all trace, yeah, we all trace like, the, mm-hmm. the, like that big moment where I think we're in the third act is da- is is Dalton's death. That triggers it. Yeah. yeah. That's how it yeah. triggers the third act. Was, were we ever in danger of not getting to something quickly enough? I think like the only moment there was a concern of, oh, this might go a little off the rails is... At one point, Cal was concerned because you were still very focused on Olatika, and like if we can get Olatika, then we can turn the tides. We already knew Olatika's dead and a zombie, so how do we keep them from like walking away from all the things that are happening that are very important? That you guys needed to be there, right? Because I didn't want you guys to go back up to the mountain to find Olatika at that yeah, point. Yeah, because at that point it'd be a waste of time, frustrating for you guys, and then like more bad things are happening as you're gone. That's why. That's why suddenly it's like, oh, suddenly like they summon Olatika. Yeah, as like a to fight you guys in the in Leroy. It was really more yeah. like so you guys didn't go the. Fight. Oh, you're doing us a favor. Yeah, in a way. Like, uh. In a way, <laughs> it was it was one of the very rare instances where we had to like really firmly and by we Cal had to really firmly cut off a path that was open to you to avoid you guys spending your time in a your then very precious time in a way that wouldn't help you. Well, actually, related to that, there's another one I was curious about. So towards the very end there, for purely character-driven reasons, I had Kafka really stumping for the party to get the hell out of there instead of dealing with the mess we'd made, both because I thought it made sense for Kafka as a character and because I didn't see any reason for the party to stick around. Uh, and so I was curious, because then you ha- we had a couple interventions that convinced the two of them to change their minds. Like, were those safeguards always in place, or were or were you encouraging us to not flee? Oh, you mean like towards at the, like the, at the very end where there was like that moment with like the with Pico Pico Berry? Yeah, and then uh, Damius had a moment with Marlowe, the grave of Marlowe. I didn't intend the Marlowe thing to be necessarily a call to stay. I didn't intend the Pico Perry thing to be a call to stay because I felt like that made sense for Pico Perry. And Kata's alignment to encourage like an anti-demon mm-hmm. sort of thing, but no, I didn't really want to. I have a, I had, I had like two different ideas for how this went. Like in my head, I'm like either they go and take down Zeranagam, or it's this kind of like mad dash out of the jungle. You're being harried at every step, kind of, kind of ending. Yeah, that was one of the final. Is it, like, it's either those. Yeah, in my, in my head, I'm like it's one of these two endings. It's so, either we stand and fight, or it's the race out of the jungle. I was kind of going for the race out of the jungle. I, don't get me wrong. I like how it turned out, especially because Kafka got to do the cool things mm-hmm. and not get hurt very much. But but no, yeah, I, I guess I was just curious if that was uh, another thing where you needed to guide us. I wanted to kind of remind, I think like the Pico Perry thing I used to kind of remind Kata. I'm like, I think this is me as a gym being like, I think your character and I think your God and like the who you've built this character to be would react differently in this situation. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, and I feel like maybe... I don't want to correct it, and I'm not saying how to play your character, but, like, there's other forces that we've involved in this that, like, maybe would have an opinion on that. And, like, how does your character then reflect on that opinion that 
you know, what happened. But everything else, I kind of wanted it to, I did want it to leave it open. If you guys wanted to end up fleeing, like I kind of saw that as, a, as another valid exit to the story. I feel like, I feel like I reached my own moral decisions after Appearance of Marlowe. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I do feel like I, I feel like I, I know I remember I, I felt a sense of responsibility, you know? Yeah, I could see that because I, I feel like I also, because I felt like at the end of the day, more than anywhere else, I think Domius would think of this place as home and you don't want to leave your home a mess. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Also, I didn't like, and that sense that I didn't want what had happened to me to happen to anybody else. Right. And I feel like, because I wanted right. it to be the sort of thing, I was very keen on not doing a save the world campaign. Like, I, I didn't want it. It, it was kind of like save, like, this local region of the Dragon's Jungle where none of us live. Like, that was, like, kind of the big, like, if we don't do anything, this bad things will happen to people we don't know about. And, like, and that was kind of enough for me. Like, it was, like, this existential threat. Like, you know, it, like, let's if, if you would never stop the Charkha, what would have happened? Well, Zoranagam and the Charkha would have militarized. They would have probably been a huge thorn in the side going forward to, like, all of the regions around them, right? Like, they would have just turned into this, like, powerful de- demonic worshipping force. And it, this little blip of the jungle would be, like, you know, where, like, these evil apes and all that resides and no one ever goes there ever now. Uh, and that is a story and that's the ending of that. But like, I feel like, you know, things like Pico Perry and like other good aligned things, like if you could stop that sort of future from happening, then you maybe should, you yeah. should take that, the steps to do that. I think one of my other favorite episodes from ages ago is the episode where everybody had a dream sequence. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Cal, one of the things that I really enjoy about your general GMing is your ability to have those moments that don't necessarily tell you how to play your character, don't necessarily shift the choices that you make, but are just meant to give you something else to consider. Because I think my character, like in in that dream sequence episode, Zoramnagam appear- appeared in my brain mm-hmm. and talked to the spirit of the ginkgo for a minute. And like I, my character could have chosen to do something else entirely, but it was a really good way to just kind of remind us of the outside forces. Because I feel like when your party is sitting there talking amongst the three of them, you sometimes make it smaller than the storyline is yeah sometimes that can happen like people are like oh like, it, th- that's not important like this is what's important it's like you don't get to decide that i get to decide that <laughs> exactly <laughs> like we've got a checklist of our own but it's really just like a, oh we should go check on those laughing dogs and those gripply and those things like we had a big list of things that we were just like oh we should go find out where those are but you know there's bigger things at play and it's nice to be reminded of that in most of the other campaigns I've played in, I've played as good aligned characters, and I wanted to really challenge myself this time by playing a neutrally aligned character and actually sticking to it. And that was really hard during the final episodes, where there were all these really, really good plays to decency for why we had to stay and fight, why we had to protect these people and not just leave them to die. And it was really killing me to have to play Kafka true to his alignment, but... Kafka's more self-involved than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate that I got the freedom to do that, that this that actually helped inform the story rather than me just kind of being an obstacle. Right. I feel like it's okay. I, I like that you kind of went out of the way to make Kafka someone who's like, well, I don't know about all this, like maybe like this other solution entirely. And I think those are totally valid because like, I wanted the story to be able to go wherever it naturally just was going to go. Because mm-hmm. like, there hits a certain point where like there's so much dis- – if like people are having too much disagreement where like you can't just fundamentally decide on what the characters are going to do next. And eventually like someone has to like give in. Someone has to kind of be like my character 
chooses to do this because like and then you have to find that reason for yourself like like what is my character's reason for doing this and what and like and and i think you made that the right a fun choice with like kafka wanting his a and like ooh. i would argue christy was the one who, That's true. who christy saw the opportunity and seized it yeah, that was a that was definitely a spur of the moment. Oh my god, that's all Kafka wants. Are you fucking fucking kidding me? It's fucking brilliant. I have been very honest about Kafka's very simple needs for this entire campaign. Christy the player was pissed at Paul the player for not going along with the plan. And then was like, Oh shit. Well let me just dangle this carrot for a minute and solve this in a character way. Again, that's the best way to do it. Well it was a tricky thing because again, I like to be accommodating to the larger party. Like when during session zero, I like to find out what everybody else is playing and then shore up the party's weak point. I generally like to be accommodating. And so Kafka's alignment and the way I played him was meant to be a challenge to myself. Because, mm-hmm. like, again, I wanted Kafka to be able to do the stuff. I just – I had to be honest with the character in those moments. And in some of those moments, I didn't feel like in character he'd been given proper incentive. Mm-hmm. And I, I needed to play that truthfully. Yeah, I think – like. What I would recommend and what I always say in those situation, situations is like, like this is why you like why we have session zeros is to like make sure that you're building a character for the campaign and who is going to find reason within the campaign. I think you have to like do the work sometimes to find your character's reasons for why they're going to do this thing. Even, you know, it can be out of alignment because like people can act out of alignment. You know, good people do bad things. And bad people do good things. And so, like, you have to kind of find the reasons why your character behaves in a way that, like, is conducive to good gameplay and good story. It's interesting because, like, Eulister was neutral good and I think – and was built for this jungle. He was – he was you know, he said – So himself, well built. He's built <laughs> – yeah. he would have broken open those – he just had to touch a pyramid – and can tell you what was inside of it. I'm so pissed that he okay. I When you told me that, I was thinking about because I was thinking about all the ruins in the jungle. I'm like, oh, this will be interesting. And then yeah. he died. I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and all but, my secrets. But at the same time, it's like Eulster would never had any moral ambiguity through the whole thing. Whereas whereas Domius yeah. is neutral with a piece of himself that's neutral evil, right? And constantly trying to pull him that direction. Yeah. And so what happens, I think, for him, especially in his alignment, is – well, two things are – because you talk about the dream sequence, which is really amazing. Um, The dream sequence is when we first find out – we first hear the voice of the dark half, which is interesting because I had not really thought about that much. Mm -hmm. And – and then I don't you and you. Didn't I love like, that you just took a mechanic from the class and just kind of turned it into this whole other part of his personality. It's very, it was very fun, and very clever. But it's also, it's like I don't think that would have ever been really discussed if not for that dream sequence. Like it was the only moment where, in fact, it could be given voice, right? That it could right. talk back, yeah. And because otherwise, it doesn't exist in the world, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it exists there, and that was this whole. Then was this, this whole thing re- reveal that it knew everything. That it had the full memory, you know, and and so then we get to this to this then moment later when Marlo reappears and Domius remembers his own life, and that's an alignment shift for him. It's like actually he pulls away from his evil self mm-hmm. and becomes good. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that very much. Uh, I want to talk to you guys a little bit, um, a little bit maybe about the more nuts and bolts parts that we use like things like the, the the three action economy and poisons diseases what else what about that five room dungeon five room dungeons yeah 
Any, um, what were your thoughts on some of that stuff? I'm a little sad that the shaken progression didn't have a yeah, stronger play. I didn't use it enough. I completely agree. I kind of meant to use it in the finale. I, there's my notes being like, use that. And I, I was shaken. Didn't. Like at one for point one I was shaken turn. for one whole turn before I fell unconscious. That's the only one that I felt like maybe we yeah, didn't use enough. I didn't use it enough. And I, I feel like, because it, it's definitely designed for a game where like you're, you're like, a much... This this ended because like, I I pitched this as like a horror game, but it's really still more of like a jungle action adventure, but with dark themes. That was kind yeah. of like that's ended up what it ended up being, which is kind of more where I'm comfortable anyway. Yeah, I I did have like I had I had things to deal with fear, like almost I could make myself immune to it, and also that. I could pull fear out of other people and give it to somebody else. That's cool. I remember um, you, did, you did it like once or twice. Yeah, yeah but I was I didn't have the option to do very often. Like people didn't, my allies didn't get afraid enough. And so I never really got to use my phrenic applications. Well, I picked an archetype of fighter that specifically has extra bonuses against fear effects. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I could have used that mechanic a little bit more altogether. That's maybe like one of my bigger, like if I could if I could go back and redo things, I probably would have like slapped on more. I should have just slapped on more like will saves on pretty much everything. Yeah, just circumstantial. Right, like it stuff. should have been like you, when you went into fight, like when Zeranagam enters the room, it should have been like everyone make a will save because Zeranagam's here. Like it should, have, I should have done that kind of thing in retrospect. I just didn't, and I should have. <laughs> well, it's interesting because obviously functioning as a DM, you're tracking a lot of things all the time. But I feel like for this particular game, it's like you took a chessboard and made it into a cube, and that's kind of what you were doing. Because not only were you tracking the mechanics of the game, you're tracking the NPCs, you're tracking is it day or night, you're tracking everything else that's happening in the jungle and how everything is being impacted, but also it's all in a nebulous mist. So would you talk a little bit about what that process was like for you since you didn't really fully plan ahead? Anytime there was a session, almost every time there was a session, it was a game changer. I remember that distinctly. Every time everyone left after the game and I said, well, what happened? You're like, well, they didn't do at all what I thought they would and I got to figure it out. Because it seemed like every week there was a new Rubik's Cube puzzle of story in your head you had to solve. Well, it wasn't like ever that bad. I think I, I always kind of, I, I think the idea was that like all roads led to Rome. I just kept throwing like different ways to uncover the mystery of what was happening. There's just like a, there was, you know, there's a bunch of different clues and they were scattered throughout the jungle and it didn't matter if they found all of the clues. They would eventually find enough that would be they could start putting stuff together i mean that that's kind of a that's kind of one of those dm wisdoms that they say is they don't cut your players off from your endpoint. like if their their failure has to lead them to some other means of getting to the same point exactly yeah exactly in a a way the jungle is like a bigger version of the avuba mystery oh yeah i think the avuba mystery was very much set up to kind of like here is kind of what this adventure is going to be because my favorite thing to do is is to lie to players a little bit, not like big lies, but like little lies where like it, it's rooted in like the situation where like the Avuba situation is a good example, where I like, everybody in town thinks that this attack is happening because of this dread necromancer Tavik, because they all the information that all the NPCs and all the people who live in that town would make them think that. And so, like the that you get, then that allows the characters then to, to then start unraveling like inconsistencies with what they're being given with versus what they're told. Put that together, but so you were essentially training us on how to understand your larger narrative. Yeah, in a Which smaller I think version. We did a bad job of learning. 
Yeah. The whole time. Wow. I didn't I didn't I didn't get that lesson at all. Well, cuz we sucked at figuring out that it was Duke Luca and then we sucked at figuring out that Mathilde was bad well, and then well, we sucked at figuring out In fairness, one of us one of us called it. In fairness. It, okay. Yeah, it's true. In uh, in both arcs, one character called exactly what was going on. It was like, funny when you called the Duke Luca thing. I was like, he's right. I even like even Shaka's like, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, like Kafka uh, Kafka, wisdom build that he is. He called Duke Luca. He called Sugarglade, and nobody listened to him. And why? Because he's the dumbest character in the party by a huge margin. Is that all? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wanted to, I wanted to like talk about and commend you on uh, that I thought was a really great technique um, is how you created personalities for NPCs based on celebrity personalities or TV personalities mm -hmm. so that you had a fallback on every single one of them. And it was amazing how you, whenever you drop, dropped into any single character, you had the voice ready, you had the personality ready. So like, for example, the workers were all characters from Friends. Right, yeah. And, and there was that one episode where we made you go through all of them in a very rapid, rapid succession. Because yeah. I, 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 I gotta admit, Cal, I was kind of waiting for you to fuck up with one of them. I was waiting for one of them to be kind of phoned in compared to the others. And you didn't do it. Nah. <laughs> you had him. You had every single NPC down, and you and you never you like never broke. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's oh, also you. it's also yeah. very helpful as a player who's dealing with so many characters yeah. that are not you're not as familiar with as your GM is to be able to kind of rely on a response from them or like have a better feel for their personality. Because I'm not gonna lie, I'm absolutely mixed up some of the laborers and That's i i always fine. knew i like i always knew i vaguely wanted to t i like wanted to talk to the one that was monica and i wanted to talk <laughs> to like i had intentions for them because i knew what kind of personality i was looking for but it, having those kind of personalities to ground them in allowed us to make stronger story choices and stronger character choices in interaction it's good for me as a gem especially with this campaign where i had like some like just touchstones and like terms of voice and like personality that i could just like immediately just fall back on it to help understand those characters um some of them worked better than others i think but ultimately i i think they came out pretty good also uh one thing that Cal and I did before this campaign started was we sat down with the, the checkbox sheet that you guys have, the tracking sheet for all the characters, and we talked out what each character's end motivation was for being there and how their story would go if they never encountered the PCs. And then we talked through how those kernels of information were dropped throughout that tracking board. Um, so having that root of like Dalton disappointed his dad and is trying to make up for it in the wrong way. And if he lives through this, he's going to tell his dad that he loves him. Yeah. Right? There was like, stuff like that there, yeah. Oh, uh, man. Just so you feel extra bad like, yeah, about it. Like, yeah, I do. I always I I was just always ready to kind of like let the story change as it needed to because each each of the NPCs had like really different kind of things that would happen to them the more you hung out with them. Um, I'm trying to remember all of it. Like a bunch of them got thrown out cuz they stopped making sense. Like, I remember Shaka's was, like, he feels disillusioned with Sun Wukong and, like, will turn to worship of Angazan, but then it stopped. But that stopped making any sense. Because he met me. Yeah. And so I'm like, he wouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> then I brought him back. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, oh that's good to know that he was good for me and I was good for him, yeah. too. I didn't even know his, like, his faith was wavering. Oh, I talked about it every so often. But then, of course, I abandoned him and... and now he's going, and he's going my, straight to... He has the pod. And Who he knows? has the pod. 
Uh, yeah. Is he the new prophet of Angazan? No, God, that would be awful. One thing I wanted to say is that, you know, I think that's kind of amazing about what you've done here compared to, say, a module. I don't know if you get that kind of NPC development and tracking and interactions and consistency, like more than, more than anything, consistency. Um, from a module. It's harder to do, definitely, right? I've seen some written modules and campaigns where like, there are very important NPC characters who are supposed to grow with the characters. Um, but with this one, I like because the they, it could go in such different big directions, uh, it, it would be hard to... like. I couldn't write this down and then some, run this like game as a module. Well, the funny thing is that you kind of wrote it down. It is written down, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to... I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, I don't think you should like... I don't think you should like, like, you know, dismiss this. You wrote down a system for NPC tracking and it worked. Yeah, I feel like I, I feel like if I had a different group of people, it could be an entirely different game, right? Like that's how... The, people would have died differently. P- things would have gone very differently in terms of like, you know, who went where when. Like, I remember, like, there was a whole thing with Ruth, which I ended up kind of tacking on with that Vanth at the end. Like, her storyline, I remember, had you gotten towards, like, the last two check marks of her, were, like, the because she had died already, there's these things called, um, not psychopomps, but, like, psychopomps have turned evil. They're called saw kills. Uh, I was going to have this thing where, like, a saw kill was trying to, ki- like, reclaim Ruth's soul, and, like, you'd have to, like, defend Ruth from a saw kill. And then we get all five check marks with it. Sembuin Pace restores 100% HP. Damn it. Wow. Yeah, I was sitting there for you guys the whole time. We ne- <sighs> Well, we never got to full five check marks of anybody. The five check marks was, like, these, like, crazy good rewards of everybody. What was Malik's? I have to know. Uh, It was, I think you could buy, like, anything, like, from a shop for, like, 50% off. God. Like what was Dalton's? I don't remember. I, I have it all written down wow. somewhere. Yeah, we, we have a spreadsheet that I was like, we're using a spreadsheet. But that's also a good aspect of that of your NPC tracking um, you know, device and that there was rewards at the end of it. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what Dalton's like um, player reward was that made the game easier, but I do remember that his character moment, if you had gotten there, was he gives you a letter and says, if I don't make it out of here, give this to my dad. I have that yeah, letter. Like, so I got the- that letter, but I got it at mark th- at box three. Yeah, I moved things because, around. Because Cal was like, oh, this character's going to die now. Yeah. yeah. It's really like, I don't know if he was going to die, but like he, after that incident happened, like let's say you had even, he had survived it somehow, he would have been like, like a comatose, like in terrible shape the rest of the, like a huge liability the rest of the time. It would have been a whole other thing. Did you pull it up? Yeah, uh, the Dalton's thing. Dalton's, Dalton's maximum is that he gives them the bow. Oh, that's right. Oh, this oh, is well, much we, easier. Yeah. yeah, we got it the easy way, I think. Yeah, and it was <laughs> and it was so useful. <laughs> Let's see. Paul's pissed because I got this awesome amulet from my god, and you got a moment with Marlo Damius, and then Paul's like, I got this bow that kills animals that I never got to shoot at an animal. He shot at an animal. Once. One. One. A single animal. <laughs> What was the animal? It was a gorilla. Oh, that's cool. Gorillas. It was yeah. It was it was a gorilla, but yeah, like r- there were so many gorillas. There were so many <laughs> other animals in this campaign that we had to fight. And I swear to God, the moment I got that bow, they all cleared out of the jungle. True. <laughs> it's like whenever your character in another campaign got good at tripping, and then nothing we fought had feet anymore. Yeah, yeah. Real <laughs> suspicious, Cal. Super suspicious how that goes down. Which, actually, speaking of animals, I do another encounter that I really enjoyed. It's one I wasn't even there for. Is uh, when you did that whole buildup about this this huge creature with monstrous teeth. You've never seen anything like it. Do a knowledge of nature check. 
oh, it's a hippopotamus. <laughs> I I loved that little twist. Of course, all of us from Tim Burton Landia would have never seen a hippopotamus <laughs> before. <laughs> that, that, it's such a good character-driven way of showing something really mundane and kind of playing with the idea of what is mundane versus what is fantastical in the stitched world. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, were there any other fun bonuses on the NPC chart? There was a, uh, not nothing like that stands out as like something really that interesting. There were just like, cool items. Most uh, the the last one for Shayaka was the was this really cool artifact called Sun Wukong's Puzzle Box. Ooh. I forgot what it does. It, it's been months now since I wrote this thing, but I remember that was cool. I'll check out his his yes. uh, boxes later. What's yeah exactly? <laughs> hey, uh, uh, last. A couple things I want to talk about is how we felt about you guys like the like the three action economy. Oh, as a natural attack player, absolutely. Yeah, it didn't interact great with some of the fighter stuff. I think. Yeah, what was your issue? Oh, I mean, it was just confusing about like the third attack is almost completely pointless. Yes, if you don't have like natural attacks and things to bolster those, because you're at a negative ten deficit to begin with. So but it, but it's a luck attack. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's a luck attack, but I was kind of stuck. Rolling this attack that had almost no chance of succeeding, uh, or I, uh, but if I didn't do it, then I couldn't do certain things that I could only do if I had a full round of attacks or mm. like a full attack action, as opposed to like if I'd been able to say move, uh, I couldn't then use my remaining two attacks to use, say, rapid shot. Rapid shot. You oh, because rapid shot, you take a four round attack to use rapid shot. Yeah, exactly. So what I'm really doing with that third or fourth, I should say, arrow is I'm kind of just throwing it away unless I roll a nat twenty. Hmm. And and I'm so I'm not necessarily wild about that aspect of it, but I also know that this is kind of the way Pathfinder is going for uh for Pathfinder two. So yeah. I, yeah. So I suspect reaction. the uh the way that those kinds of feats will interact with the three action economy. That's probably going to be play tested and figured Cleaned out a little bit yeah. by the time it becomes formally adopted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a spellcaster, had we we play tested Pathfinder two, and I did it as a spellcaster, and I really loved it in Pathfinder two for spellcasting because your components matter, right? You know, and I enjoy that, and especially then, of course, if you have a spell that has one component, like wow, it's a one action spell. Yeah, yeah it's a one action spell. Um, but in this case, you know, it's two actions per spell, but also like the way that it allowed me to understand what I do with that third action. Like I knew what my, what my options were versus I kind of like, I guess I have to move somewhere. No, I can do a lot of things with that. Yeah. I think that's what I kind of like about it. I, what I, one of my favorite things about it is that I feel like it turned people, it like. It allowed turns to be more flexible and more interesting because I feel like the issue with like with traditional like D and D and Pathfinder both have this where it's like you basically have two moves per turn. It's a move action and a standard action. There are little fiddlier actions in there, but really it's the main. It's just these two big ones, right? And if you and there's a bunch of effects that like make you lose a, an attack or make you lose a turn, and like suddenly you're just like not playing, and like that's not super fun. And and, and so I feel like I, this sort of gets around that where. You like like you know like let's say your character gets knocked over or has to pick something up from the ground. That's not all you're doing that turn. It's it sucks that it, it eats up a bunch of your turn, but like it's no longer like I got knocked over. I have to stand up and then move, and that's my whole round. Yeah. Well, also like fifth edition lets you split your move. That's right. right. Um, but in but in this in, in action economy, you can split your move. 
essentially because you have three things you can do so you can put the standard you can put the attack in the middle right you know i like i just i like that style i like the flexibility of it yeah i feel like it's fun because the thing i've been hearing a lot about fifth edition in comparison with original pathfinder is oh but combat is so streamlined like pathfinder must have been like tearing their ears off having people say oh but the combat in fifth edition is so streamlined then pathfinder is like you can do three things how streamlined is that? Now we're streamlined. <laughs> <laughs> it's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, it's right. Though. That's the thing is it. it that, I mean, we, again, having we, having play tested the combat in, in Pathfinder Two is like really clean. You know, I mean, and I would I would dare say maybe cleaner than Fifth. <gasps> yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I'm sorry. Unpopular opinions. Yeah. Gone are the days of Mathfinder. <laughs> I also think that it's it's works better for holding actions because you can take two of your three actions and hold your third mm-hmm. with a very specific action in mind. I mean, it, it allows you to be a little bit more specific when you're like, I shouldn't quite go yet. Like, I'm going to shift over here so that when Kafka does this thing, I can actually yeah. do the thing I need to do instead of being like, oh, fuck, I go three people in front of Kafka. It allows, what I like about it is that it allows movement. Like people, I think you, I saw a lot more moving in combat than we typically do because that's because another thing about pathfinder usually is like the iterative attacks like it doesn't benefit you to be moving around because when you move you lose your iterative attacks right yeah. you only get your only one big one then uh where is this like it doesn't matter as much at all like you can you can be free to move and still attack twice or you can move and like grab something and attack like i liked like yeah like, well yeah that's also it's interesting you said it because you know that kind of freedom of action um, is actually lends itself to better role playing. Yes, you know that was the one of those one of the problems in fourth edition was that everything was so structured that you ended up having almost no role play interacting with your combat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it, it, like it's like I again I, I was a fan of fourth at first, but it, but ultimately through my experience, you found I found it suffering as far as role playing was concerned. Yeah, I had some issues when I was in a fourth edition campaign yeah. over very similar lines. So I'm always of the opinion that. Going on an adventure for your character puts their life in a different direction that it never would have been before. So my question for you guys is, if we did a time skip a year from now, where would your characters be and what would they be doing? You don't have to have everything worked out. A glimpse is fine. But I guess, like, instinctually, where do you see them? Kata, I don't think, had any intention of being an adventurer adventurer. Before this mission, she was like on it for her thesis, and like she was about you know discovering and the more archaeological aspects of it. I think, but now, but now I think Kata absolutely is just an adventurer. She's kind of shirked the more academic side of life and is now just gonna adventure because turns out being a snake shifter is awesome, and you can really go kill some stuff. Well. Ulysses Talking Board has made into a secondhand curio shop (laughs) where it's about to be purchased by a a gaggle of teen girls who are going to have a seance game and invoke something dangerous. Uh, (laughs) I just just look at you like, oh, the the, the spirits are asking for tea. I don't. (laughs) Yes. Uh, he says he wants his own tiara. I don't. I don't understand. Uh, so, um, so uh, 
Dami's is in a really interesting place. And, you know, there was kind of like, I think that Cal and I had talked about this connection between Dami's dark half and the abuses in his past from his father, who's a vampire. Yeah. Um, there's this history of Dami's where he and his mother fled um, uh, Chermov uh, because uh, his father was, was evil and a monster, essentially technically a monster, right? Um, and, uh, and so now he's returning to, uh, his ancestral home, um, to a sense, to essentially face his father. Right. And there is something that dark half in him is, is a is also kind of like leading him there, you know, even in, in the moment, in that moment when he says goodbye to, um, Shayaka, like there's that part of him, there's that, that piece inside of him that's telling him to do this. Right. It's not something he wants to do. Um, and so I think that he's somewhat being led to where he's going. I do not know because I, there's a lot of that, that I've, that I've built into Damius where I do not know where he's going. I did not know how he killed Marlowe. I let Cal decide that. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't know if he actually killed Marlowe. I know that he thinks he did. I don't know if he actually did or not until it was decided that he did. Um, so it's the same thing with what's behind the door of Malivore Manor. I don't know. You know, I think. I think Kafka's conversation with his parents about where he wants to go with his life um, could have gone better. Um, I think, which, like, it's understandable. They sacrificed a lot for him to go to to Magic College. Uh, And, of course, they weren't happy when he ended up uh, deciding he wanted to be a fighter, even though he was really good at it, even though it was actually quite lucrative, even though there are a lot of very respectable people in fighting careers um, and I think after he dropped out of school, he went back to the to the person that he connected with on the expedition, who was also concerned with disappointing his parents. And he went into business with Malik. I think Malik began like an acquisitions thing mm-hmm. uh, where he handles stuff in the central office. And Kafka is essentially the delivery guy. He's the guy who's on the ship ensuring safe uh, passage of the goods That's cool. uh, from place to place. I think they're business partners. I think it goes really well. Uh, I think eventually Malik's father is probably proud of him. I haven't decided yet whether Kafka's parents are or not, or if they'll get there eventually. And as all this happens, somewhere in a field somewhere, with each passing season, there is a black goat. And, <laughs> and there is snow... And there is grass, and then the grass yellows, and then there is snow again, and so on and so on this goes. Um, And other goats, other kids grow into goats and grow old and die, and trees wilt and die, and this goat does not age a day, and just stands there in that field forever. I like that very, very much. I like that too. In your head canon of these NPCs, you guys have grown to like know and to love. Like, if you could have like one cutscene of them in their future, what would you hope for them? I think. Okay, I know exactly what my cutscene is. Holy crap! Um, I think Malik sends Kafka. This is maybe I want to say eight, nine years from now. Okay. Malik sends Kafka back into the dragon's jungle. Uh, because there's a client that needs a pi- that needs something picked up out there, um, and the boat comes to a stop beside the treehouse where Suresh Sumadra is, uh, and I think the client is Anushka. I think they're I think they finally figured out what they need 
to cure uh, her father. And now Kafka just needs to deliver him home. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I think Kata, so Kata's immediate thing is she's actually going to go and find um, Dalton's brother. So I think, I think actually maybe there's, maybe there's a love story over there. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. For Kata and the Zhuzh family. She, maybe she's just meant to be a Zhuzh. <laughs> who knows? Um, but I think that I think ultimately she promised Ruth that she would also be on the lookout for a cure for Suresh. And I think she and Dalton's brother somehow get involved in this return to the jungle to go and rescue Suresh. I think there's this beautiful cottage on the beach with Shayaka and Damius sitting on a porch, looking out at the, at the, you know, lapping waves. I don't think that any of this is real. I think that, uh, this is just a, a, a thing that's projected into Shaka's head from the paw of Angazan. <laughs> um, and that in, tr- in truth, Shaka is a nightmarish, horrible, <laughs> monstrous figure about to impose terror on the world. And, 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 and the, the demon knows that what, it, what Shaka really wants is to, is to wreak revenge on Damius for breaking his heart. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Shaka. Oh, yeah. I am so glad I asked that question. <laughs> Dommies doesn't get happy endings. Uh. <laughs> um, okay, well then I think we should we should wrap up Eyes in the Mist. Yeah, hey, if you listen to the end, you survive the dragon's jungle. Uh, and not everybody can say that. That's true. That's very mm-hmm. true. You can tell your DM you get a one free nat 20 on any attack because you listen to all of Mythos Manual. Or, or tell your DM that you want an emerald for listening. <laughs> Try explaining that. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the first volume of the Mythos Manual, Eyes in the Mist. Stay tuned to see what we do next. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 Steel Pro Saga. <laughs> 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 <laughs>